So this is lesson seven on tithes and offerings, and I've called this giving in the book of Acts. It was just going to be New Testament giving, and then I started studying the book of Acts, and I thought, I got way more than I can shake a stick at for one lesson just on the book of Acts alone. So that's what we're going to look at. What does is, what is the book of Acts reveal to us doctrinally about giving and the heart of God behind giving? I've written out a lot of stuff here, so we're going to read through it. So this is kind of a review or kind of a summary or a kind of showing us the setting of the book of Acts. After the ascension of Jesus Christ, the early church continued giving in accordance with the Old Testament commandments. Why wouldn't they? Nothing has come along to tweak it. Uh, the book of Acts reveals that the early saints continued worshiping at Herod's temple, which is evident. Peter and John went up to the temple on the third hour to pray. They're still going to the temple, even though they're born again, spirit-filled, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils. They're still honoring God as they were taught under the Old Covenant. They were continuing to give alms to the poor, and they even began distributing to the needs of the disciples. That's the setting we find in the book of Acts. God's response towards the offerings that are recorded in the book of Acts will help us to further understand the Bible doctrine of giving. So there's five or six offerings recorded in the book of Acts, and they're recorded for major reasons, and God always has something to say about these offerings, which is why they're recorded. And how God's responding to these offerings reveals more of his heart and his nature behind giving. And so we ought to look at that. We ought to understand what the book of Acts is trying to communicate to us. But before we go into that, I have a, a section here where I want to deal with the erroneous arguments against tithing that are usually used in the book of Acts. You have to understand the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's not exactly called the Doctrine of the Apostles. There's not a lot of doctrine expounded upon in the book of Acts because it's the acts. It's what they were doing. It's how the gospel was being spread. You only have one or two sermons. Actually, as I can think of it, three sermons recorded. Acts chapter 2, Mars Hill, and Acts 19. That's the only three sermons I can think of that are recorded in the book of Acts. So you don't have a lot of doctrine expounded upon, not like the epistles give. And that's okay. It's, it's a history book. Theologians consider the book of Acts to be a book of history. We can build doctrine from it, but it's not a doctrinally heavy book. All right, you understand that? Okay. So erroneous arguments. It's been argued and debated that tithing was, quote, done away with. We've all heard this at the cross of Calvary, being under the law. Of course, in, in our lessons one through four, we proved to you that tithing and offerings were way before the law. They were established by faith through the patriarchs, our fathers of faith. And Abraham gave by faith 400 years before the law. And Cain and Abel gave an offering 1,400 years before that. This thing is, is way before the law. And we, what we discovered in lessons one through four is that the law comes along and just kind of gives guidelines for how they had already decided in their heart they wanted to worship the Lord. We know that Noah established the first altar. So that became a precedent. All the, all the descendants after him that worshiped Jehovah God, they would build altars because Noah did. Then you come into the book of Exodus and Numbers and the Lord says, if you're going to build an altar, I want it built this way. So the Lord begins to say, this is how I want it done. Most of the stuff in the law is only tweaking or giving guidelines for things that were way established before the law. And if we can understand that, we're not looking to be free from the law. We're looking for the guidelines that paint the picture how God wants things done. And, and how else do you communicate your heart by saying, do it this way, not this way. I want it done this way, not this way. That's just so legalistic. That's communication. I mean, the only other option is to be silent and guess. Uh, the, this whole desire to be out from under the law is really a lawless spirit. 
And I, I don't want to be lawless. That's the spirit of Antichrist. I want the Lord to tell me how to do something. And we make the argument over and over again. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There's over 1,000 in the New Testament. So the New Testament is a lot more legalistic than the Old Testament. 613 mitzvah, a uh, 1,000, I think 1,050 New Testament commandments, scriptures that give us an imperative command. When you eliminate uh, the, the duplicitous commandments in the New Testament, you still have over 800, which is still 200 more than the Old Testament. And when you find all the, new, all the Old Testament commandments that carry over to the New Testament, there's only about two or 300, which means there's about five to 600 brand new commandments in the New Testament that were not in the Old Testament at all. So the New Testament is way more commanding, way more demanding than the Old Testament ever was, and yet we're called free. Because knowledge is power, and ignorance is not bliss. All right. It's further argued that the book of Acts never mentions tithing, that the, the fact that the book of Acts never mentions tithing is further evidence that we are free from tithing. That's a, that's a, fa a failed fallacy of an argument. It will, to Acts has never mentions tithing, therefore, see, we're free from it. All right, well, Acts doesn't mention a lot of stuff. It doesn't ever really talk about praise and worship. It doesn't talk about instruments. It doesn't talk too much about holiness. It doesn't talk about prostitution. It doesn't talk about voting. It doesn't talk about church attendance a whole lot. So to say that it's silent on something is proof that we're not bound to it is a very ignorant statement. Because it's the acts of the apostle, not the doctrine of the apostles. Acts silence on a doctrine is not an evidence of its disannulment. Acts silence on a doctrine is not evidence of its disannulment. On the contrary, it may imply a presumed maturity on behalf of the reader. That the reader doesn't need a refresher on the most basic of established doctrines. So here's another good theological argument for you. Pastors are the most widely accepted office in the New Testament church, right? How many times does the New Testament mention pastors? Once. Ephesians chapter 4. It's used the word shepherd in other places, but you get to the, the, uh, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah mentions pastors 20-something times, I believe. Pastors were from the very beginning. Pastors were your regional leaders in the, in the time of Israel, in the nation of Israel. Why would you come over if you're building upon the foundation of the Old Testament and rehash everything you've spent 2,000 years building? It's pretty simple to me. You know, we got prophets all throughout the Old Testament. We have prophets mentioned more in the New Testament than we do pastors. We have apostles mentioned way more in the New Testament than we do pastors, but everybody acknowledges the role of pastor now. So the silence on something, there's not a single pastor mentioned in the book of Acts. James, we understand, is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, but he's never called a pastor. He's called an elder. So these are all fouled theological arguments when people don't want to do what is evidently the heart of God. That's why you have to be careful. You can make the Bible sing and dance and do anything you want it to by omitting scriptures. That's why we have to study the whole counsel of God's word. That's why I teach that model of the diamond. Get as many facets, as many doctrinal scriptures on a, on a subject as you can, and you'll have the fullness of God's heart on that subject. That's why these lessons are coming into seven, eight, and nine lessons long now. So we have a fullness from Genesis all the way to Revelation on the heart of God concerning giving. All right. Acts 15, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things 
that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. For if you, if you keep yourselves, you will do well, fare ye well. This is Pastor James's judgment concerning what do we tell the Gentile converts to do? What, what, do we put them under the law? Do we, they need to be circumcised? This is, this is about 10 or 15 years after Pentecost, and the church at Jerusalem still doesn't get it. Not the folks that have stayed there. Paul is getting all these converts. Word is coming back to Jerusalem that the Gentiles are converting left and right. And so the church at Jerusalem, which is like the mothership, they're asking, what do we do? Do, do they need to be circumcised? They're not circumcised. How? That's horrific because that's a cultural thing to them. They totally missed all the scriptures about being circumcised in your heart. That God was concerned more about that. So Pastor James, he says, this is my judgment. Let's lay upon these Gentiles no greater burden than these four things. Abstain from meats offered to idols, blood, which this is all Old Testament law, and things strangled, and fornication. He goes on to say, for in all the cities they have synagogues where Moses is read. So these are things you avoid for conscience sake. These are things that you're being avoiding for the culture of the local church's sake. But this is a verse that is used to argue, look, tithing is not a burden they put on Gentile believers. So because tithing is not one of four burdens put in Acts 15, we're free from it. All right, where's the fallacy in that argument? What about thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not commit adultery? My favorite that I like to use, thou shalt not prostitute thy daughter. From Leviticus chapter 19, thou shalt not sleep with a dead person, thou shalt not sleep with a dog. So we're free to do that because there are not four burdens mentioned in Acts 15. This is goofy theology. And when you stop to think about it, you think, well, duh. But this just goes to show anybody can make the Bible support any lifestyle they want if they're willing to cherry pick two verses out of context. The only problem with this argument is that the, the list, it lists four of the 613 mitzvah. If these are the only four laws we have to obey in the New Testament, then we are now free to murder, lie, embezzle, trip the blind. That's actually a commandment in Leviticus 19. Do not trip the blind. It's in Leviticus 19, right after love thy neighbor as thyself. So you have to make a commandment because people were tripping blind folks? How horrible those Israelites were. <laughs> Exploit the orphan, prostitute our daughters, sleep with animals, or pass our children through fire. I guess we're free to do that because it's not one of the four burdens. James said, this is my opinion. No, it's a flawed argument. Furthermore, the New Testament contains over a thousand commands very few of which are, at, are even mentioned in the Acts. So I just want to get that out there because if I'm going to cover the book of Acts and the arguments, I've got to give you the negative too so you can understand. There's a lot of stuff the book of Acts doesn't teach us, but a lot it does. That's why we have 66 books of the Bible and not just one book of the Bible. They each teach us something different about God. We learn very little about praise and worship from the book of Acts except that Paul and Silas in the midnight hour sang praises unto God. That's about it. And maybe Peter and, and John went up to pray on the third hour of the day. But other than that, we don't have much doctrine on praise and worship. Most of our doctrine on praise and worship comes from the Old Testament. You can be Church of Christ, look at the New Testament, and build a doctrine that says instruments and service will send you to hell. Because there's no instruments mentioned in the New Testament. Except for the music and dancing of the prodigal son and all the trumpets of the revelation. and Except for all those. There's no real musics or instruments... <laughs> All right. The first offering gone wrong. Let's look at this. So we're going to look at the offerings of the book of Acts. 
The first offering mentioned in the book of Acts is the one that goes bad. So that's worth recording. We're familiar with this story. It's evident that the early church didn't know when Christ would return, but that they expected it to be very soon. Dr. Barclay makes the point, every generation since the book of Acts has thought they'd see Christ in their generation, and they haven't. And we think we'll see Christ, and we hope we will, but it may not happen in our generation. So we endure to the end. We can't have this escapist theology that says, come quickly, come quickly, because I don't want to take up any responsibility. We say, come quickly, come quickly, because the Bible says, but I'm going to hold the fort till you come, or till I die, and pass it on to the next generation. Jesus declared it wasn't for them to know that time or season. And instead of obeying Acts 1.8, which says, go into all the world, they, the early church coagulated into a commune-styled association. And that's very evident from the first five and six chapters of the book of Acts. They had all things common, and they just kind of came and went from their own association. But Jesus Christ had clearly said, right before he ascended, go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, everywhere. Start in your neighborhood, your city. Jerusalem is the city. Judea is the region. Samaria is the part of town you don't like. And then go out from there. And they didn't. They hung out in Jerusalem, staying comfortable. And uh, the believers sold their possessions and presenting the proceeds to the apostles lived from a common purse. The Bible says they had all things common and nobody had any needs. But this is the only place in the Bible you see that. I actually had a debate with a kid. A kid, he was a guy. He said, this is Bible evidence for communism. This is how dumb people get, folks. This is, they said, the Bible supports communism, and this is why. And I said, well, it's not supported in the epistles. There was no commandment. This is what they chose to do in their ignorance of Christ's return and in their disobedience to Acts 1.8. This does not support communism. Furthermore, if this was communism, it was Holy Ghost tongue-talking communism, which Russia's never seen, nor China, nor Vietnam, nor Cambodia, nor Laos. Now, this... <laughs> nor Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah. In his mercy, God honored the infant church's sincere act of ignorance and misunderstanding. It's what they did because they thought he would come back any time now. He'd been dead for three days and came back. Maybe he's leaving now. He'll be back in three days. Maybe it's going to be in one of the Nux festivals or feasts. They don't know. But they're just holding down the fort any day now, any day now. This uh, unity is admirable but it is not supported by any Old or New Testament scripture or precedents. That's critical. Yes, they did it here. Yes, God honored it. Yes, the first offering is a judgment in this situation, but it is not a biblical precedent. It is not backed up in the epistles. It's not further established, nor had it ever taken place before. It must be noted this is something the infant and fledgling church decided among themselves to do. They had no commandment to do this at all. Nor had Jesus Christ taught them to prepare to do this before he left. His last words were, go everywhere. And they didn't. So here's the first offering. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being private or privy to it. And they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the lamb. Whiles it remained, was it not in thine own? Was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? 
Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. The obvious problem here is the lying and the deception. And this was such a severe thing that God killed this man. There's no other way to interpret this. By the word of knowledge, Peter knew the sin. And by the spirit of God, he declared judgment. And and he, he, he told Ananias, look... This was yours. This was a free will offering. When, it was, when the land was yours, there was no commandment that everybody had to sell their land, but people just got in on it. And maybe they got under peer pressure. They saw right before this in Acts chapter 4, you see Barnabas do the same thing. He sold a land and brought the possession laid at the apostles' feet. Maybe there was a peer pressure. Maybe they kind of got under pressure to do it. Maybe they didn't want to do it, so they did it to save face, and then they kept back part of it. But Peter says, look, when it was in your possession, you could have do anything you want to with it. Even after you sold it, it was still yours. The problem is lying about it. And so grievous was this thing. They said even Satan had, was involved in this. So we have to be careful. I know we, we all lie a little bit. We all deceive a little bit. We, we act in guile, and the Lord convicts us of that. This was a conspiracy of sorts. But the problem with the conspiracy is it doesn't become a conspiracy overnight. There's a slowly creeping in of a conspiracy. And that's why you check your heart for guile now. You check your mouth for guile now. You don't exaggerate. You don't lie. You just be honest. Because the bread of deception, the Bible says, is very sweet. But in the end thereof, your mouth will be filled with gravel. So we see that this offering is very critical to the Lord, and it was a free will offering. It was not a commanded. This was not a Levitical commandment. This is what they chose to do to, to support the local church in that stage of its development. And yet the heart is what God's judging here, the deception, the lying, the conniving, bringing Satan into the offering time. And woof, Ananias drops dead. Sapphira comes in three or four hours later. She drops dead, and the church is purged of its leaven. And God shows how clean he wants his church by killing people during offering time. <laughs> this this, this lets you know how, how holy God thinks the tithe and the offering time is. And that's why we try to do the best we can around here to speak over our tithes, to bring baskets, to, to make a big deal out of it. It's why I will always reject the kiosk. The bloop, I will always reject that because that can become so carnal so quickly. We will never do a, a PayPal thing where you can just swipe your wristband to give an offering. It'll always be something we can present because this, this right here, this screams at me that this is how holy God considers the offering time. Don't, we can't dare bring carnality or sinfulness in on this. Amen. This event reveals how critical the heart is to giving. These offerings were voluntary, not mandatory, as is evidenced by Peter's reply. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? This is yours. It doesn't say, remember the Lord, the tithe is the Lord's. So this wasn't a tithe. He said, while it remained, it was yours. And you could do anything you wanted to with it, but why lie about it? Peter's very clear. Give as much as you want and as much as your heart wants to. Just don't lie about it. Guile and deception in giving is unacceptable. Once again, the motives of the heart are paramount when worshiping God. That's what this passage teaches us. That the heart in our giving, the heart in our worship is what the Lord's concerned about. He didn't care whether it was five bucks or whether it was a hundred bucks. Just don't lie about how much you sold it for. Just don't lie about it. That's what the Lord hates. And this honestly is a fulfillment of thou shalt not lie. So I guess they're not free from that law. (laughs) The daily ministration of the widows. Here's our second inference of an offering. The, The early church obviously used part of their communal budget, 
And that's the key word is budget. Every Christian should have a budget. Every ministry should have a budget. You should teach your children how to budget. If you don't have a budget, your life will be destroyed. You will be poor. You will be in debt your entire life. I guess I should say submitting to a budget. Not, don't just have one because the U.S. government has one. That's how we know we have a $4 trillion deficit. Submitting to your budget will make you wealthy. From their communal budget, they took money to care for their widows, which is an Old Testament commandment. Due to the inherent nationalistic biases, the Grecian, that's the Hellenized Jew or a Jew born outside of Israel who had foreign culture about them. They were an Israelite that had been born in Rome, had been born in Lydda, had been born in Spain. They were in the Hellenized world or the Greek-influenced world, so they didn't have a, a Jewish accent. They maybe spoke Hebrew or Greek, but you could tell they weren't from around here. You know, it would be the difference between an African and an African-American. They look the same. They have the same heritage, but the accents and the cultures are different. So you would have been able to spot a Grecian from a true Israelite, even though they were both Israelites. So there's a racial bias there, or there's a cultural bias. And because of that, the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the care. So we see here that there's money. And there's money that's budgeted, and that budgeted money takes care of widows every single day because there's nobody to take care of them. And so because of that, the money's being misused, and that causes a problem in the local church. So we can see here that God wants his money not to be misused in the local church, but he wants it to be distributed evenly and fairly as those have need, uh, have need of it and need to receive it. So Acts 6.1, And in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied... There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So the Grecians being the body of Christ that's there, that's from Hellenized uh, parts of the world, they're complaining against the local Israelites that are there. And there's a division in the church because they can see all the Grecian widows are being neglected, whereas all the Jewish ones are being taken care of first. That is partiality and God forbids it. So the early church budgeted their offerings to avoid the daily care of the widows. And again, I can't emphasize enough, every church should have a budget, every ministry should have a budget, every household should have a budget. Would to God the U.S. government would live by their budget. Every corporation should have a budget. This is just wisdom. Remember, the prophetic dream answer for, Israel, for Egypt was a budget. Seven lean years, seven fat years, and, and Joseph's interpretation was save 20% a year for the next seven and you'll be able to survive. It's a 20% savings plan. That was the prophetic answer, a budget. And Pharaoh said, I need you on staff. <laughs> if some of us would get a budget, the world would say, can you come on staff? But it's just that easy. I remember years ago, somebody sent out uh, uh, Dr. Oral Roberts' miracle debt cancellation plan. And I rolled my eyes. I thought, not another cheap TBN gimmick. And I opened it up and it was, get a budget, get a budget get a budget. That was the miracle debt cancellation plan, the wisdom of God through Dr. Oral Roberts. And I thought, whew, not a gimmick, just hard work and discipline. This practice was later adjusted, the care of the widows. It was later adjusted in, uh, as the church matured and Pauline, that means the apostle Paul, Pauline doctrine was established. Paul commanded that if possible, families were to care for their own widows first so the church would not be burdened financially. Notice as all this movement going on in church governments to make sure the church isn't burdened when it doesn't need to be burdened financially. Paul's very clear on that in Timothy. Let, let them that have widows take care of their widows themselves that the church be not burdened. 
so the church can use money for other things. We want to take care of the widows, but it's not right if you have a job, you're 45, your mother's 65 or 70, and you can take care of her. Why would you burden the church when you should? That's your mother. She could have taken you out anytime she wanted to, and she lets you live. <laughs> so uh, the only widows to be cared for by the church were to meet certain criteria. Thank God we have criteria. That's a little legalistic, but I like it. Here's some laws. I can't care for a widow if she's under 60. If she doesn't have a good reputation, if she hasn't been a good mother, that's why you want to be a good mother your whole life because you might end up a widow one day and you need the church to take care of you. If she's been given to hospitality, if she has relieved the afflicted and full of good works, those right there, if you don't meet those criteria as a widow, I don't have to take care of you with church money. Church money comes through the tithes and the offerings. So I love the fact that Paul, that's pretty strict. The Old Testament just said, take care of the widow. The New Testament comes along and says, if they fulfill these criteria. You can't tell me we have less rules on us in the New Testament. Things are getting stricter because God's expecting more out of us. And I love it. I love the the comeuppance, the call up to a higher standard. So the next thing we see is a... Uh, what I call generous people are contended for. And I want all of us to hear this. This is a powerful story in the book of Acts. Generous people, generous givers are fought for in the local church. They're prayed for. They're necessary. And if you're not generous, if you leave, we don't miss you. As in, I don't mean generous by millions of dollars, but just faithfully doing good works. Every church has people that don't do anything. And yet they expect the church to do everything for them. That's not proper. And I don't, I don't give into that game. Here we have the story of Tabitha or Tabitha. Uh, and the Greek word, her, her name was Dorcas, which is why she went by Tabitha. Because who wants to go around being called Dorcas their whole life? <laughs> Giving has a way of making you valuable to the kingdom and therefore worth fighting for. Acts 9.36 in the NIV says, In Joppa, I'm gonna, this is an abbreviated thing just for time's sake, In Joppa, there was a disciple. Notice disciple. She was in the local church. She was a student of the word of God named Tabitha. By the way, Acts chapter 9, she's a disciple. Uh, What is she studying for the Bible every day? The Old Testament. Because there's no New Testament. It's, It's not canonized for another 400 years. It isn't finished being written for another 60 years. So she's a disciple of Christ studying the Bible every day, but her Bible is Genesis to Malachi. But she's in Christ and she's free. And the apostles who are raising the dead, what are they studying every day? Genesis to Malachi. This whole antinomianism, that means anti-law, anti-Old Testament thing, is from the pit of hell. It's a bunch of carnal, lawless preachers trying to pervert the body of Christ. Paul told Timothy, you have known the scriptures from a child would have made you wise unto salvation. What scriptures? Genesis to Malachi. Genesis to Malachi made Timothy wise unto salvation. I think it's so simple once you just start to study it. So Tabitha, in Greek her name is Dorcas, which is why we call her Tabitha or Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. She learned that from the Bible. About that time she became sick and died. So when the disciples heard probably the folks from her same assembly, her same synagogue. When they heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And all the widows stood round him, crying and showing the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. This woman is a disciple. 
She is a very generous and uh, the good works, and then the King James says almsgiving. She apparently had quite a ministry of making robes or clothing for other widows and other disciples. But it's not the homeless, it's not the widows that send for Peter, it's the other disciples because this woman had a reputation for helping the local assembly. She helped take care of other people. It doesn't say she had a husband, it doesn't say she had any children. We kind of see that she's maybe all alone, but she doesn't crawl, crawl in a circle and die or crawl off and feel all alone. She's busy serving and her serving and giving either through robes or through almsgiving, has made her desired, necessary, and wanted. And for this reason, they go and they command Peter, you're the apostle, you need to come raise our church member from the dead. Think about that. This woman, she was known for her good work, she was known for her generous spirit, she was known for helping people, and when she dies, they go tell Peter, you gotta come, you gotta do something about this, we can't lose her. Now, there's some Christians you won't do that for. You say, hallelujah. Can't wait to get that funeral service done with. Amen. All the widows stood around Peter crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. I didn't include it, but one verse says that she is worthy that they would do this for her. Tabitha was so generous, her death left a void in the community. Some people die and nobody misses them. That's not the life we want to live. Her handmade robes were legendary. The local widows dreaded her loss, missed her, and they wanted her back. Let me ask you, if you die, is anybody going to want you back? I do enough funerals, you know. I, you can't, it's a little morbid, but, you know, I do funerals, and I think, what will be said at my funeral? So I start thinking, what do I need to change? I, I, funerals are good. Everybody should go to funerals because they teach you to number your days. They teach you mortality. I've, I've, I know a lot of the funeral directors around town because, you know, there's only so many preachers and only so many people that handle dead people. So we get to know each other. And uh, they were complaining to me. They said, nobody goes to funerals anymore. Nobody honors the dead anymore. And one of the, my local pastor friends said, it's not right because it, it, it robs people of this thing that teaches them the number of their days and realize that their life is but a breath. Kids don't even know death anymore. They, we don't, we, we, he, and that one of the funeral directors said, I've seen funerals get shorter and shorter and shorter because people just want to come in and get out. Funerals used to be an hour, two hours long of honoring the memory. And now it's 15 minutes. One song, uh, some nice remarks. Here's a picture of grandma. All right, let's go get lunch. Throw her in the ground, move on. There's a, there's a place to number your days and realize you don't have much time. Even if it's 80 years, you don't have much time. So there's that thing the Bible says, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. So if we die, is anybody going to miss us and wish we had a couple more years? The disciples sent for Peter that he would come and raise her from the dead. But when Tabitha's stingy and grumpy old sister Bertha died, the saints just buried her and rejoiced. Just kidding, but don't be a Bertha. See, her generosity made her valuable made her missed in the local church. It doesn't say she supported the whole church, but she had this giving spirit that was taking care of widows, making clothing. She maybe didn't have a lot of money, but she could maybe wheel and deal and get some garments and fabric, and she still had a skill set. This is the kind of thing we need to, to pay attention to. Notice, these stories are in the Bible because they demonstrate how God views offerings. 
Are these the only offerings in the book of Acts that time? No, but these are the only ones recorded because they demonstrate strong flavors of how God sees things. And God raised her from the dead because she was a giver and she was needed in her community. Stingy Christians, tithe thieves. What do they contribute? It's not about money, but it is about the heart. Amen. Just, just so you know, it's what are you doing to advance the kingdom? If you're just a dead weight, nobody misses the tumor. All right, most of you are tithers. There might be one or two crooks in here. Don't be a Bertha. We'll move on. Our giving can be a memorial before God. Acts chapter 10. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He was, but see, he was, an, he was a Gentile. And he, gave, he feared God with his whole household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? That would be say, master or sir, not like Lord Jesus. He's not mistaken here, but, you know, sir. He said, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Alms is another word for giving. This man is a pagan. He's lost. Now, he's, he's, a, he's a Gentile proselyte, so he's converted to Judaism. But he's not saved. If he dies today, he goes to hell. So this debunks the, the bad doctrine that God doesn't hear the prayers of the lost. Because everybody before Jesus Christ was technically lost. And yet they heard the prayers of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They prayed. They, Psalm says over and over, I cried on the Lord and he heard me. But David was dead spiritually. This man is a Gentile who's converted to Judaism. He has said, I choose to follow the God of Israel. And he followed the God of Israel with his whole household. He made everybody under his power serve the God of Israel. They couldn't worship other gods. And he, he prayed continually and gave alms constantly to the Jewish people. He didn't even, it doesn't seem like he took care of the Gentiles. He wanted to honor God's people. And this angel comes in and says something very powerful when you stop to think about it. He said, hey, you, Mr. Centurion... You that don't know Jesus Christ yet, you who will go to hell today if you die, your prayers God has been hearing all along. And your giving God has been collecting all along. And today it's come up as a memorial before the throne of God Almighty. I guarantee you he never thought that would ever happen or that it could happen. Now what that tells me is that there's a, there's, we know from the revelation in Mal, I think it's Malachi, that the Lord collects the prayers of the saints but this also shows us that he collects the giving of the saints too. And if it comes up as a memorial before God, there's no telling what kind of favor that will bestow upon us in that moment. And this passage goes on to tell us because his giving and his prayers have come up as a memorial, God remembered them in that moment. He sends a divine angel to tell him how to find Peter, that they would hear words that they and their whole household would be saved by. This giving... And prayer life, though he was lost, is what opened up the opportunity to be born again. And this is the famous Acts chapter 10, the famous sermon, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Holy Ghost and power, went about doing good, he all the of God's with him. And while Peter yet spoke this word, the Holy Ghost fell on them, for they heard him speak with tongues and magnify God. 
This is that Cornelius. He is just giving because it's in his nature, because he wants to serve the God of Israel, and it causes a supernatural salvation to come to his entire household. That's one of the things you see. An offering, a consistent lifestyle of giving to God's people that caused a supernatural favor, a divine appearance from an angel to change the whole course of his whole lineage. Or you can rob God. Pray when you need help. And oh, this encourages me to give more. All, every offering I can, throw in at least a dollar or a quarter or a penny or something. Live a lifestyle of constant giving. Cornelius was a Gentile proselyte, having converted to Judaism at some point prior to Acts chapter 10. His faith in Jehovah God caused him to develop a lifestyle of giving alms to the poor and praying continually. His faithful prayer life uh, and financial generosity was uh, was a supernatural memorial at the throne of God. This devotion to God brought about an opportunity for salvation for his entire household. I just think it's a powerful story, worth looking at in more in depth. I've got to keep moving, though. Offering to care for the saints, Acts 11. And there stood up one of them, one of the prophets, named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should come, there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples at Antioch, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Now think about that. Now, Antioch's only a couple days' travel away from, it's just a little bit north, kind of at the bend of the Mediterranean. This prophecy says the famine is covering the whole world. So everybody's going to be affected by it. But the saints at Antioch say, let's take up an offering to go support the Jerusalem church. Wait, but you're going to be affected by this too. That doesn't matter. We want to take care of the mothership. We want to take care of the church that's sending everybody out. They hear a promise of doom and gloom, a prophecy of doom and gloom. And what does their heart say? Let's take up an offering. Their heart doesn't say, let's get to prepping. Let's dig out a bunker, stockpile some beanie weenies, some (laughs) viney sausage, ammunition, and some MREs, and some tuna fish. And hoard, 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 baby, because when it all goes down, it's me and my four no more. They hear the prophecy, let's take up an offering. Let's send it to Jerusalem. And take care of the brethren down there. That's a generous attitude. If we heard there was going to come a nuclear holocaust, how many of us would say our first thought would be, let's take up an offering and send it to Dr. Barclay's church? That's kind of like our mothership. Let's, t- let's take care of the saints in Midland. We'd say, what are we going to do, Pastor? Let's intercede. Oh, God, oh, God. But this church, that's why it's recorded. Because it was something that touched the heart of God, and he said, I want that recorded. I want that written down. Because it shows the heart of God. You give, give, give to take care of God's people. The prophet of the Lord foretold a coming worldwide famine. The generous saints at Antioch purposed in their hearts to receive an offering to support the brethren at the Jerusalem church, knowing full well that they would also be affected by the famine. See, these are the offerings we're seeing in the book of Acts, and every one of them reveals the same heart. God honors those that give generously, those that live a lifestyle of giving, those that put themselves secondary so God's thing can be primary. As long as you want to build your kingdom, you'll always lose it. But if you'll build God's kingdom, he'll take care of yours. Paul gave offerings. Acts 24, 17. Now, after many years, Paul speaking, 
After many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This is the only time Paul makes mention that he's a giver. But he's got too much other stuff to talk about. He says this while he's on trial. Paul had returned to Jerusalem to check on the condition of the Jerusalem church. While in the temple, he was recognized by Jews from other parts of Asia as a traitor to the Jewish faith for being what they called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's what they call him in the book of Acts. This man is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he causes trouble and stirs up tumult everywhere he goes. And so he gets arrested. And he calls it, and so now he's appearing before the governor. And Paul, when he gets this chance, he says, everybody that accused me, they ought to be here because that's the law. But where are they? And he says, and I'm accused of being a, a part of what they call the sect. But you, and he tells Felix, you know the more perfect way. He said, for uh, because of the resurrection of the dead, am I here today? But he's, what he says is the whole reason I'm here was to bring offerings and alms to my nation. I came here to honor where God started it all. I came here to take care of the nation of Israel and to give offerings to my God. While on trial facing false accusation, Paul makes this statement explaining his real actions in Jerusalem. So we see that Paul, Jerusalem, you know, we know from the book of Romans, he would, that the, he would be accursed that the Jewish people might be saved. This demonstrates that wherever your heart is, you'll always be able to send money there. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles and the uttermost parts of the earth, but his heart was always back in Israel, wanting to make sure they could have salvation. And so it was nothing if he traveled to bring an offering and to give alms, which is an Old Testament commandment, alms to the poor, alms to those in need, to take care of those who aren't able to take care of themselves. Now, I'm not talking welfare. Well, most welfare people can take care of themselves. They just don't want to. Pastor Tom said he was, he's making mention that the way our nation is going, it's making it more and more conducive to stay addicted to the government. And I said, that's by design. I don't feel obligated to give those people any of God's money. We, I think we understand that poor people in first century Palestine are different than poor people in 21st century America. And so the heart is what you have to capture, not the legalistic act. We don't just go give money to everybody. We have to use wisdom. Some people you give a job to. Some people you give a rebuke to. Even Paul said, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And he didn't say, and I'm not giving you anything to eat. Paul knew the law better than anybody. So we do give to the poor, but you've got to make sure you know that God sees them as poor. Remember Pastor Gary Brown said, if you make $25,000 a year in the U.S., you live better than 95% of the world. And if you make $30,000 a year, you live better than 99% of the world. 30,000 a year, you live better than, you are the 1% of the world. You may not be the 1% of Cookville or America, but the world, and that's 7 billion people. So you are the cream of the crop, even not living like Hollywood, but then again, who wants to live like Hollywood? So final page, here's our review for this. Those are, the, those are all the mentions of offerings and givings in the book of Acts that I could find. Maybe I missed one. I don't know if I did. Here's a review. It's obvious that the early believers had a faith and love that compelled them to generously support the gospel, the poor, and the saints of God in need. The following principles are reestablished in the six passages above. So point number one, don't lie about your offering or mislead anyone in your giving. Be honest. Just be honest. That's all God wants. Lord, I can't afford to. Lord, I don't want to. Lord, I'm scared. Lord, I sold it for a dollar. Here's a penny. Just be honest. 
That's pretty basic. Number two, financial giving provides resources that should be budgeted to care for the widows and other saints in need. We do care for widows. I have financially, I have financed widows in this church the whole time I've been pastor. Biblical widows. Widows that fulfill that. We, we've taken care of them financially. We've taken care of their households. We've taken, because we, we do it. It's the Bible. I enjoy doing it. I, Rick knows we take care of those widows because should we outlive the rapture, they're going to meet God before me. And I want them to take a good word. I want them to say, that young preacher took care of me. Amen. I, I feel an obligation to take care of every true widow in the, in the house of God. If they come to church and they love God, I'm going to help take care of them. Point number three, generous people are valuable. Generous people are valuable. I, it may, I, you guys know my heart. I'm not a money grubber, but non-tithers leave. I don't, I don't bat an eye. Because what were they contributing? Complaints, taking up resources. If you don't tithe, you're, you're in rebellion to the word of God. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not mad about losing a rebel. You just freed up place for somebody else to come. But generous people are valuable. You'll pray for them. You'll intercede for them. You'll fight for them. But if all you ever do is take air and take time and take energy and never give, you're a parasite. And that's not what the Bible teaches you to be, so you should grow up. Their loss can be damaging, and therefore they are often more contended for in prayer and intercession. Now, you can give a lot of money and be just as ornery and stubborn and at some point the money's not worth it even as Paul or Peter told Simon your money perish with you there's a place where that takes uh, takes place as well but we're looking at Tabitha everybody said you've got to raise her it's worthy that you should raise her from the dead she she look at all the get things she made for us what will we do without her that should be our testimony what will the church do without us Number four, faithful, consistent giving can become a supernatural memorial before the throne of God, providing for deliverance and help from God. I like that one. Just a consistent lifestyle of giving. You never know when it will come up as a memorial before God, and he'll send an angel or a preacher or a messenger to deliver a message and a, and a salvation to our household. Generous givers move quickly to put other saints before themselves. Generous givers move quickly to put others before them. If the church is in need, let's take care of them. And over the years, we've, we've received offerings. We, were, we, we helped pay for Pastor Casey's new hip in South Africa. We helped do a, a water well when Pastor Aquoco needed one. We, we, helped, we raised, those are big chunks of money too. A hip ain't cheap. <laughs> you know, and even in socialized South Africa. And a water well isn't cheap. Now, the one we built for Pastor Aquoco was impressive. We've done that time and time again as a church, because I know this is a generous church. We've put other saints before us, and we've never gone without. And finally, generous givers want to support the gospel work in their own nation. Paul said, I've come back to Jerusalem to support the poor and give offerings in my nation. So may we be as generous as the early church in our giving. Amen on that. And now our next lesson, number eight, will cover all the New Testament or the epistle teachings on it, and we'll see what we can find on tithes uh, their offerings are covered exclusively, but we'll find more of the heart of God, and I think that'll conclude us. I want to write a ninth one on ministerial ethics with money, because the Bible says a lot about how ministers should handle money, but I won't, have, I won't be here to teach it, but maybe we'll write it just for the sake of it. 
Let me pray. Father, bless these listeners. Bless the students of God's word. Bless us as generous givers. Thank you, Lord, for giving these stories in the book of Acts for our edification and doctrine building. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be generous, even if generosity is just a dollar out of our pocket. Find us faithful and promote us. We call the pod schools in the future blessed. May all those that listen to these and study these in the future receive from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.